0: All right, if you have your Bible, open to Romans chapter 9. Today we are beginning the most difficult section of Paul's letter to the Romans. That runs from chapters 9 through 11, and it's particularly chapters 9 and 11, uh, in particular that are most difficult. Chapter 10 doesn't have that many difficulties associated with it. But Romans 9 through 11 have, have challenged interpreters for a very long time. And there, these, this section is, diffi- is difficult for a couple of different reasons. One is um, there are some things... One reason it's difficult is because some, there are some things in this section that are just hard to interpret. Uh, like it's not always easy to understand with 100% certainty what Paul means by a certain word or phrase. Think, for example... In chapter 11, verse 26, when he says, and, and, and thus in this way all Israel shall be saved. What does he mean by all Israel shall be saved? That's, that, it's hard to understand what he means by that. That's, that's one difficulty. Um, but the other reason this section is difficult is the flip side of that first reason. That is to say, it, the, these chapters are difficult precisely because we understand what he's saying. Like, it's just a hard saying. Uh, but we have to deal with it. And I think chapters like the one we're going to look at today, um, they, they do us some of the most good because, in, the, in, in this sense, it's, it's chapters like this sometimes that, that sort of shake us up and make us think again and reexamine our, our thoughts of God um, to, to see are we forming all our ideas about God. Remember, we've said many times, Tozer said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Okay, well then, if that's true, is what comes to my mind when I think about God, is it formed, am I forming all those ideas from what he has told us about himself in his word? Um, or have I come, and when, what pops in my mind when I think about God, is it, is it come also from some preconceived ideas about him, that aren't necessarily rooted here or just in some um, intuition that I have about the way I think things ought to be or he ought to be like. Um, that, Yeah, so it's a good thing that we don't, we don't inform our ideas about God in our mind and then go looking for script, in Scripture for support. We, we, we look at Scripture, inform our ideas about God based on what he has told us about himself. And as we're reading, if we come across a passage that seems difficult to square with what I, what I, the view I hold in my mind, we don't quibble with the Scriptures. We go back to our conception and make it fit all of what he's told us about himself in his Word. Uh, and, uh, because Scripture is God's Word, and he's, it, it's, it's him saying, this is how you should think of me. Okay? Romans 9 gives us a very good opportunity to do just that. The difficulty in this chapter won't lie quite as much in the interpretation department. That's going to be the example I gave, for example, in chapter 11. But rather, the unambiguous nature of what Paul says here, that is quite strong and confident. Um, When we read it in a a second, you'll see what I mean. But before we do read it, let let me just zoom back and first give you what i believe is the place of this section romans 9 through 11 in the flow of the whole letter to the romans because um, uh, because if if you just think about it in the way i just said these chapters sort of hang out there just ominously uh, and you don't really think about how does it fit in what 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 the, this letter is all about and how it's unfolding um, but I think that these chapters play a very real and very practical um, role, one that is relevant to you still today, okay? And let me try to explain it this way. Remember the flow of Romans so far. Romans began in chapters 1 through 3 explaining, Paul, it was explaining how despite the abundant revelation that God has given to us of himself, even those who don't have a Bible, think about Romans 1, and the Gentiles who do not have the Scriptures, they, his nature has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. That's Romans one eighteen and following. But, it, but also those in chapter 2, the Jews who do have the Scriptures, in addition to the things that have clearly been revealed about himself in creation, the fact is um, in humanity in mass, despite that, that revelation of himself, we have gone our own way. If, we, if, we, if he's revealed himself, historically speaking, if he's revealed himself in the sun, moon, and stars, humanity has tended to just worship the sun, moon, and stars rather than through them to see the living God. Okay? We, we, we've gone our own way. And, and, and the, the conclusion near the end of chapter 3 was that, that um, uh, there's no one who does good, no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside and gone our own way. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of god that's 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 romans chapter 3 verse 23 but in the very next verse romans 3 24 it begins the good news um it it, it, it romans three twenty four begins to talk about okay but god has sent forth his son jesus christ to be the propitiation for our sins he he came as our substitute bearing the just wrath of god Uh, In our place to be the propitiation for our sins. Why so that God in his mercy Could show us mercy and still be just in doing so he's not sweeping our sins under the rug He's he's dealt with our sins and now he can justify us in Christ and still be just in doing so Um, The one who puts their faith in Jesus and then chapters 4 and 5 took a deep dive into that idea of justification Um, the justification being the doctrine that that Upon repentance and faith, uh, not only are we forgiven of our sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross for our sins and in the resurrection, but we are also declared perfectly righteous in the sight of God because of what Jesus did in his earthly life to live an obedient life in our place, right? Um, and, and, and in justification, a great exchange happens. Jesus, got, Jesus took our sins so that in repentance of faith, we can receive his righteousness, um, chapters 4 and 5 were stressing the fact that this justification comes to us we receive it through faith alone apart from any good works that we do to deserve it and he goes back in chapters 4 especially to the old testament example of abraham where genesis fifteen six says he believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness he believed before he didn't do anything good to deserve it then in chapter 6 it's it, it was about uh, the new life that every believer has in Christ uh, and, and the, 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 the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. Uh, for every person who is justified in Christ, um, it, they in that moment, because of the word of the Holy Spirit, begin the process of being sanctified in Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now, to use the language of Romans 6, the Holy Spirit now enables us uh, to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, um, enables us to to day by day, moment by moment, present ourselves as instruments of righteousness, um, becoming more like Christ in the process. I said that Romans 7 was almost like an aside somewhat to address um, the abiding purpose or lack thereof of the Old Testament law. And Paul argued that the, the law is insufficient either to justify or sanctify us, not because there's a pro- problem with the law, there's a problem with us. We can't keep it. Which brought us to chapter 8 that we've been studying for the last three weeks. Chapter 8 just sort of ties all of that together, it sort of brings it to this climactic crescendo, it talked about how there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it talked about the eternal hope that we have in Christ. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And it's like, it's like this eternally secure in Christ, those who are in him by repentance and faith. And he ends the chapter saying, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's one of the most hopeful and joyful chapters in the whole Bible. There's not a discouraging word in Romans 8. But that sets the stage, though, for chapter 9, which we come to today. A lot of times when people think about Romans 9 through 11, they think about what it says about predestination in chapter 9, or the place of of Israel in, in God's saving plan in chapter 11. But neither of those things is the, the main point of these chapters, okay? The main point, the thesis of Paul's argument in Romans 9 through 11 is stated very succinctly uh, in chapter 9, verse 6 at the very beginning of it. If you're looking, it says the, the first part of chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. That's the thesis. Um, That is the charge that that Paul is defending in these chapters. And it is a very real, very practical, very relevant um, point for all of us. How so? It's Paul anticipating and addressing a very real objection to all that he said so far. Think about the exuberant hope that we saw in Romans 8 all of the wonderful promises that we have in jesus christ as the old hymn says i'm standing on the promises of god but it's precisely on this point that paul anticipates and feels required to address um, a very real issue that if not understood could threaten the trustworthiness of those promises um, that we so confidently stand on in christ jesus and that issue that he anticipates I'm gonna to try to articulate the objection that he's responding to in 9 through 11 it's this you talk about all the promises you have in Romans 8 really Romans 3 24 to Romans 8 all these promises that you feel so good about in Christ Jesus um, didn't God make a lot of promises to Israel too uh, whatever happened to those did his word and promise fail to them did, did, uh, did God fail to keep his promises to Israel? They had a lot of promises. And if he didn't keep those promises that he made to Israel, how can you be so sure that he's going to keep his promises in Jesus? Um, you know. You see how that's a real and relevant thing? Um, ever since chapter 3, verse 24, we've had nothing but unbroken good news and joyful, hopeful promises. The objector would say, Well, I hope he keeps his promises to you better than he did to Israel. Well, we have already seen Paul's reply put very briefly in the beginning of verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. So he's going to say that objection has no merit. Okay? Um, But what he does in chapters 9 through 11 is not just say it but defend it. Okay? Uh, We're going to begin to see his answer to that objection in chapter 9 this morning. That we'll, we'll look at most of the chapter today, so buckle up. Uh, let's read it first, and then we'll dive in. Paul says, Romans 9, 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh they are israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the work the the giving of the law the worship the promises and to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the christ who is god over all blessed forever amen but it's not as though the word of god has failed for not all who are descended from israel belong to israel and not all who are children of abraham not all are children of abraham because they are his offspring but Uh, He quotes Old Testament, through Isaac your offspring shall uh, be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, quoting Genesis 18, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's quoting Malachi 1 2. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles as indeed he says in hosea those who are not my people i will call my people and her who was not beloved i will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you are not my people there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for this word. It is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth in these, in these verses and give us minds to understand it clearly, but then hearts to embrace it and uh, wills to, to live out what it admonishes us to do. Would you give me the help that I do need to teach and... Um, give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes, here's how I want us to think through this chapter. I want to follow Paul's lead in his train of thought. And in doing so, I think there are sort of three movements to these, this passage we just read, three movements that, that each defend the character of God against the objections brought against him. Here they are. Uh, the first section is going to be verses 1 through 13. And it's going to begin to address this question that I already raised. Can we trust God's promise? Can we trust God's promise? This whole section was going to, Romans 9 to 11 is going to defend that, but these early verses, especially verse 6 that we've already looked at, uh, is going to begin to address that. Can we trust God's promise? But then, based on what he has said there, which you probably picked up as, on as we read, verses 14 to 23 is the second section and he's going to tackle this question can we trust god's justice can we trust god's justice this is the thorny part of the chapter not because it's hard to understand but because it's easy to understand it's just a hard saying and he's going to come back at the very end verses 24 to 29 and he and 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 uh, I think really based on what he says there He's going to I'm going to summarize it by answering this question. Can we trust God's love? Can we trust his love? You know, even if Paul adequately defends his justice in verses 14 to 23, he might be just, but is he loving? That's what you're feeling with uh, at the end of the chapter, but I think he shows we can in all three cases. There isn't any question. this is a challenging chapter, but in reality, uh, it yields a lot of encouraging results to us. So let's go back to the beginning and begin to think about this first question. Can we trust God's promise? Um, put your thinking cap on on these. When you get to the end of chapter 8, there's, that, 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 that there's, we're, there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. It's not immediately apparent why you go from that that exuberant joy to all of a sudden in chapter 9, Paul talks about his, the unceasing anguish of his heart. But he quickly, we quickly learned that he sets up the, he's setting up the objection that he's about to address. He lays out very clearly how his own people, the Israelites, have on the whole not come to faith in the long-awaited Messiah that they've known about for generations, um, who is Jesus Christ the one that Paul's been magnifying for the last five chapters. Paul says he has unceasing anguish in his heart. He even says in verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's an amazing statement. But he begins to explain in verses 4 and 5 not only his anguish over their unbelief, but also, in a sense, his astonishment. His astonishment. Uh, in verses four and five. What he does in verses four and five is he lays out all the advantages that the Jews had always had to recognize the Messiah when he came so that they might believe in him and be saved. So he says in verse four, to them belong the adoption. That means out of all the nations on the earth, they were the special, unique covenant people of God. He says to them belong the glory. In other words, they had seen with his own eyes, with their own eyes, his provision for them in the in the in, in the exodus event and the parting of the sea and the pillar of, of fire and cloud and manna from heaven they'd seen his glory um or or the, the the thunder and lightning on the mountain when in the receiving of the law he says to them belong the covenants out of all the nations of the earth god had covenanted with them and and, and given them many covenants covenants that ephesians two twelve called the covenants of promise that, there's, with, with, that, that as, they, as these covenants unfold, they unfold with increasing clarity, increasing specificity who this Messiah would be and what He would come to do when He came. He says they have the giving of the law. They out of all the nations had God's Word literally written down for them. To them belonged the worship. Again, God had given them how they were to worship Him. And even in the way that He gave them how to worship them, think about the sacrifices and things like that, how they worship were pointing forward to this is what you should be expecting when the messiah comes and he says that to them they have the promises all the reassurances that that would not leave them guessing in their search for the messiah and he puts a finer point on it in verse five when he says this messiah this savior would come from your own race it would be a descendant of your own patriarchs he even says this messiah is god himself who is coming Jesus Christ, who is God over all. In other words, they of all people on earth had been given every single advantage. For when that salvation came, as God promised, um, they would be ready for it. And as Jesus Himself taught, to whom mu- who has received much, much will be required and expected. And the Jews had been given much, uh, and much was expected from them when He came. But contrary to every expectation. They by and large rejected Jesus when he came. The vast majority remained in unbelief. It grieved Paul, but it compelled him too to address the elephant in the room. If to them belong the promises, whatever happened to that? All right. So, like, how are we supposed to understand these promises of God, of God to Israel and then the mass unbelief? That resulted how are how are jewish believers in rome to understand this and how are the all believers jew and gentile alike to understand this well to get, paul gets right to the point in verse six uh, which is the main point of chapters 9 to 11 god's word has not failed and paul is quick to assert that despite the mass rejection of the jews we can still trust the promises of god his word hasn't failed it does not fail it will not fail How does he demonstrate that? Because it wouldn't be a very strong comfort if he said, his word hadn't failed, let's move on. No, he he supports what he says. Uh, And uh, and he does, he gives a basic reason at the end of verse 6 through verse 8, which he's going to defend for the rest of these chapters. The basic reason of this, that he gives is this. If you read the Old Testament carefully, God never promised that all, all the Jews would be saved. He never promised that. It would be a promise indeed if he had promised that every ethnic Israelite would be saved and then they all weren't. That's not what happened. But look at what Paul says in the second half of verse 6. How can he say that God's word hasn't failed? He says, for, because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He says the same thing in a different way in verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham, because they're his offspring. Paul is saying the promise never was to every ethnic Israelite. Not every ethnic descendant of Abraham is a child of Abraham in the the saving sense. That never was the point. Okay, what was the point? Well, he continues in verse 7, but, and he quotes Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's that's God himself saying the promises are not by physical descent, but but through this promise that I'm giving, through this this promised child who would be Isaac, and he makes the point more explicit in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. God God never promised salvation to all Israelites. And so the fact that all have not believed hasn't threatened God's promise. That's the basic point. And Paul then demonstrates more clearly what God actually promised. He says in verse 9, For this is what the promise said. And he quotes Genesis 18, verses 10 and 14, kind of a combination of those two verses. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. In the Old Testament, he's, he's saying this. In the Old Testament, just, he says, read it. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Um, and they were both physically descended from Abraham, but mere physical descent from Abraham isn't the way. God promised Sarah that she would have a son in her old age. God miraculously provided that son in Isaac. Uh, and God promised salvation to come through his line, not Ishmael's. Right? Right? Uh, and, and would be received through the faith of Abraham in that promised one. So, and to demonstrate that, that's, that God's salvation is always by his election and promise rather than through physical ethnicity, he not only shows how God chose Isaac, not Ishmael, but then he also further shows that he, cho- he then later chose Jacob, not Esau. He makes this point even stronger in verse 11. That God chose Jacob, not Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. In other words, God was sovereignly working out um, two paths. One is the path in which his salvation would come, really, through a sovereignly chosen line, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a genealogy that would lead to Christ, but as well as a path in which that salvation would be received. Not by ethnicity, not by works, but by his sovereign election and call. That's just what it says. And Paul essentially says that if, if Jews are surprised that God would work in this way instead of what they otherwise expected, well, he's saying God all along ex- indicated that his salvation would come in this unexpected way. Because he points out in verse 12 that where God said of Jacob and Esau, the older will serve the younger. That's Genesis 25, 23. That would have been completely upside down from conventional expectation, which would have said the younger will serve the older. But God is demonstrating his sovereignty over the salvation of sinners in choosing his own way of salvation, how the Savior would come, and how that salvation would be received, and who would receive it. He finishes this section of his argument in verse 13 by quoting the prophet Malachi. Malachi 1 2. He says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a strong sentence. Um, New Testament scholar Doug Moo, looking at the context of those opening verses of Malachi, says that that word hated carries the connotation of rejected. He rejected uh, Esau. And if you look back to those opening verses of Malachi, uh, you would see how. God is telling the descendants of Esau, who were known by the name of Edom, Edomites, he's telling the descendants of Esau, who they had rejected the Lord, that if they choose to build, he's going to tear it down. He's, he's not going to allow them to prosper. Um, but he's also telling in those opening verses of Malachi that for those descendants of Jacob, who consequently had also rejected the Lord by and large, that he has loved them and their eyes would see his faithfulness. The point is, both sets of descendants were both rebellious. None deserved his favor. God freely chose Jacob. And so it would be manifestly clear that not only is salvation one of mercy given rather than earned goodness and works, but also that salvation is completely of the Lord. God saves sinners by his merciful electing love. So that in the words of Malachi 1.5, your own eyes shall see this, And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So can we trust God's promise to us? Did he keep his promise to Israel? Or did his word fail to them? Well, Paul has argued in these opening verses, and it's hard to follow, I get it, that God never promised salvation to every ethnic Israelite, but to a chosen remnant. That chosen remnant who respond in repentance and faith to the Messiah who has come. He kept His promise to Israel, and we can trust His promise to us. But Paul knows that the way he has framed this argument is going to raise another objection, that if salvation is owing to God's purpose of election, how is that fair? How is God just in doing that? Can we trust God's justice? That's the section he goes to next, beginning in verse 14. Paul knows what That's what everybody would be thinking after what he just said about Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. So he says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he answers in the strongest way possible in Greek, by no means. That's not a bad translation. It's probably, in English, probably doesn't capture the force in what he actually said. Um, Tom Schreiner, one of my former professors and pastors, said that these verses, verses 14 to 23, are almost like an aside in in chapters 9 to 11. These chapters really focus on the trustworthiness of God's promise, the trustworthiness of his word. Paul knows, though, that this is an issue that he's raised, and so he needs to say something about it. Listen carefully to what Paul says. He says in verse 14, 14, there is no injustice on God's part in election. Verse 15 begins with the word for which means you can imagine the question, why? Right? So at the, end, at the end of verse 14, and he's about to give you the answer in verse 15. So in verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Why? Verse 15, for because, and he, he says to Moses, he quotes Exodus 33, 19. This is, I'm giving you these references because they're not unimportant. Exodus 33, 19, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, just look carefully at that verse. What are the words in that verse, verse 15, quoting Exodus thirty-three, nineteen. 19, what are the words used there to describe his salvation? Mercy and compassion. And he continues in verse 16, that salvation depends upon not our works or even not on our will, human will or exertion, but on God who has what? Mercy. When, When did God, I gave you the reference, when did God tell Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion? Where does that quotation come from? Exodus 33 What happened in Exodus 32? Golden calf. The golden calf. Here it is. Paul has basically ruled out injustice on God's part because the truth of the matter is when each person stands before the Lord on that final day, they will be either recipients of either justice or mercy. Nobody's going to receive injustice. Why? Why? Because remember what Paul said all the way back in chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know, he said in Romans 3, 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. If you, one to three, that's all of us. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be accountable to God. God owes salvation to no one. We rebelled against him. He's not obligated to be merciful. So there are only two possible outcomes when sinners stand before a holy God justice for those outside of Christ. Mercy for those who are in. Nobody will receive injustice. But Paul continues in verses 17 and 18 in a way that feels even stronger. In verse 17, he cites Exodus 9:16, where God hardens Pharaoh's heart to demonstrate God's power over Pharaoh. So that Paul concludes in verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Some of the most difficult parts of this chapter revolve around that issue of God's hardening of sinners. And this hardening of Pharaoh is the quintessential example. How should we understand this? We need to begin by acknowledging that there are some things that we cannot or will not fully understand until glory. But that's not to say we can't understand anything about it here and now. And the difficulty of this passage is that we do understand what he's saying. So let's think carefully about it. Let's think back to the example of Pharaoh that he gives, and he gives it for our instruction here. In Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart for a time, which means God what think about that word, hardening. If it means anything, it means this: God hardened Pharaoh in Pharaoh's own wicked desires. Pharaoh had the wicked desires, and God just hardened it. You see what I'm saying? He didn't put the evil desires there. Pharaoh had those desires, and he put a seal on it, right? Um, and, and, and God did this so that Pharaoh wouldn't listen to Moses. He wouldn't let the Israelites go free, and that would provide the forum for God to demonstrate his power and authority over Pharaoh, which is exactly Paul's point in, Romans 9, or in, in, in Exodus 9. But in, in Pharaoh's case, God's hardening was proactive like this. But very often in Romans, and even within this chapter, God's hardening is more reactive and judicial in nature. Remember what we read all the way back in Romans 1. There we read, and I already brought it up, that about despite the abundant revelation of himself to us, uh, the en masse conscious rebellion against God. From all people, even though they know deep within their hearts that God exists and that we owe honor and obedience to him. But think about Romans 1. We already looked at this months ago now. What did, what did, that, what did Romans 1 say three times as, as a result of the, the continued disobedience of the Gentiles to God's clear revelation? It said three times God gave them up. That's verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. God gave them up. The third one is even God gave them up in their desires to do what ought not to be done. What does that mean, God gave them up? To put it differently, he hardened their hearts in his just judgment in the desires that they already had. He hardened them uh, in their persistent rebellion. He let them go their own way. He confirmed them in their own way. He gave them exactly what they wanted. And as we come to Romans 9, is it entirely possible that this is the kind of hardening that is in view. We saw in the first point that the Jews had been given every advantage to know God, to know His will, to know the Messiah when He came, and instead of recognizing Him and knowing Him when He came and coming to Him for salvation, they rejected Him and went His own way, which Paul is going to describe more at the beginning of chapter 10. And it's on the heels of this revelation that Paul introduces the hardening, it's a It's a hardening that appears in part to be a judicial response to their rejection of the Messiah. But Paul knows the objection is still going to come, which he states in verse 19. Why does he still find fault? We've seen enough already to answer that question. He's given enough revelation of himself so that people are without excuse when they reject him. And when he hardens them, he's hardening them in in what they've already freely chosen. And what Paul says in verses 19 to 23 I've got to go fast. Um, what he says in verses 19 to 23 is that God has every right to do that in, in the way that a potter has a right to mold his clay however he desires. In, in verses 22 and 23, Paul gives reasons that God could have in, in his purpose of election, which is to notice it, it, the, the language. What if God desiring to show, in verse 23, in order to make known... Demonstrate God's purpose of election could be to demonstrate His power, His just wrath, His patience, the riches of His glory, His mercy, His loving kindness. That's the words that are used in those verses, which quickly leads us to the last thing we see here. We've seen Paul address two questions so far. Can we trust God's promise, which He has begun demonstrating? Yes. And He's going to keep doing that for the next two chapters. But can we trust God's justice? He gave reasons that most certainly we can, even when it's still a hard thing for us to understand. Even when it's... that I'm not going to lie. That's a hard thing to understand. It's not a hard thing to grasp with my mind. It's a hard thing to embrace with my heart. But even when that is what it clearly says, and even when it's a hard thing to embrace with your heart, we still say... In Genesis 8 with Abraham in Genesis 18 25 shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right even when our fallen intuitions cannot satisfactorily grasp what I just read I can trust that the judge of all the earth is going to do what's right my intuitions are not always true north does that make sense well very quickly we need to see the last question that Paul addresses in our passage which I'm summarizing in this way. Can we trust God's love? That's verses 24 to 29. Paul turns these last verses of the passage to the loving kindness of God to his people, which is also a mercy to us. And he emphasizes both Jews and Gentiles as his people. And he does it in such a way that the way he emphasizes it, um, it puts emphasis on the love of God. It's, It's inescapable. Let me try to show you that. Paul says in verse 24 even us whom he has called so again he's re-emphasizing there that our that prior to our repentance and faith there is the sovereign effectual call um, on our hearts uh, from him that brought us to that point of repentance and faith that our repentance and faith is 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 evidence that he's already done something in my heart but he says even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles Now, he's already said back in verse 6 that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That means, who's Israel? Those Israelites who trusted Christ, but it also includes Gentiles who do. And he demonstrates God's love to the Gentiles, love to the Gentiles. That would include us. And he does it in two quotations from the prophet Hosea, one in 25, one in 26. And just listen to those quotations. The first one is from Hosea 2.23, and the second one is from Hosea 1.10. Listen, just listen to these quotes. God says, those who are, in verse 25, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And similarly in verse 26, quoting Hosea 1.10, And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The way Paul uses these quotations from Hosea to talk about God's bringing Gentiles into his people, it reminds me of the language he uses in Ephesians when he says, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And you just hear the love of God in those quotations. Not my people to my people not beloved, beloved, not my people, sons of the living God. Then when he comes to the Jews, he talks about them from two quotations from Isaiah. The first one in verse 27 from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23, and the second one in verse 29 from Isaiah 1, 9. And in the first one in verse 27 from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23, he's saying that even though israel where many people only a remnant of them would be saved which on the surface seems not so loving but the second quotation in verse 29 is from isaiah 1 9 where the prophet says if the lord of hosts had not left us offspring we would have been like sodom and become like gomorrah man even then so is that in the in the in the mass of 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 fallen humanity that that if left to themselves would have become like Sarah, Sodom and like Gomorrah, that he saves some is evidence of his loving kindness. This is a difficult text for sure. But think of the, think of the important things that, that, that Paul has turned our thoughts to as we bring this to a close. He has turned our thoughts to the fact that we can trust the promise of God, the fact that we can trust his justice, and the fact that we can trust his love that in an unexpected place is an encouraging word let's pray lord um, would you help us to to wrestle with uh, your word uh, we we confess lord our, our 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 sense our intuitions our our sensibilities are are they're not, they're not perfect, they're fallen, they're wayward. We don't see things as we ought to see them, but they're not completely wrong either. And so, Lord, sometimes there are passages in your word that it is hard for us, not necessarily to get our minds around, but to get our hearts around. And so, Lord, would you help us to humbly come under your word and trust you? Trust that you are good. Trust that you are wise. Trust that you see things that we don't see. Trust that you know things that we don't know. Just like a, just like a, a parent to a child. Sometimes we as children, in, in a human way, our children can think their parents are being unjust or we don't understand. And parents know that we do. And so like you to us, Lord, help us to trust that you know what we don't know. You see what we don't see. Um, and you are perfectly good. You are perfectly wise, and we can trust you, and we can love you, and thank you that you love us and that, uh, that you, you, you have given us mercy. As we sang this morning, your, our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. Lord, we, we give you praise for your word, and thank you that uh, you give us words that challenge us, and um, we, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.